We're in this second Sunday of Advent. We're preparing our hearts to receive the greatest gift that God ever gave, his one and only son. And so I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, uh, we have a copy of God's Word at the Welcome Center. We would love to give you a copy if you don't have one. Uh, You can also access this teaching on the Bible app on your phones. And so just pull up the Bible app and and, uh, click on events. And uh, I think the technology will take over from there and it'll it'll find our gathering here today. But Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to be. So what's your radio tuned to these days? It, I switched over to 24-7 Christmas music the first weekend before Thanksgiving. Now, I know some of you could have done that November 1st, but I want you to know there's a theological issue at work here. And so um, I'm praying for your soul. Um, I'm praying for your relationship with God. Um, but getting into this Christmas music too early kind of defeats the sense of preparation, the sense of anticipation that should accompany uh, Christmas. Some purists would even have a strong critique of me for for listening to Christmas music as early as I do. Um, But I was riding around, and I heard this little tune. I bet you're familiar with it. You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. A certain person is coming to town. And, and this certain person, um, well, there's a line in the song that jumped out at me this year like it never has before, and I, I didn't like it. He knows, he sees you when you're sleeping. That's weird. Like, that's really weird that someone would see us when we're sleeping. I'm going to go ahead and move Santa Claus is Coming to Town to the, the creepy playlist, along with, like, Baby, It's Cold Outside, like, these are songs that I think in our modern day have been ruined a little bit. Um, so I don't want to sing about anybody watching me while I sleep. But here's the cool thing about Santa Claus. The, the myth or the thing about Santa Claus that we've created. Kids are in the kids' church, right? Um, so <clears throat> if you've got a seventh grader here, um, look, it's time. Okay, it's time. But... Uh, what we've, what we've created uh, with the, the idea of Santa Claus, uh, it, 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 it does a lot of things, but parents, it does this one thing for us. It gives us another tool in the behavior modification tool belt that is so important for us as we, as we try to raise our kids and teach them certain values. And for one month out of 12, you're able to say this, you better straighten up. Santa Claus is watching. You, be, you better talk nice to your sister or your brother. Santa Claus is watching. And so, for no other reason, I like the fact that we have this as a part of our story. It gives us one more chance to correct behavior, an easy way to correct behavior. We bribe them with toys. And uh, I just remember being a kid and knowing that in the month of December, if I got my name on the board, my Christmas was over. It was, it was completely over. If I got in trouble in the month of December, I could ruin Christmas morning. And so, I try to stay out of trouble. Now, there's a story in our Advent series of texts, a story that we tell every year that actually invites us to get into trouble. But it's not the kind of trouble that where you get your name on the board in school or you go to the principal's office. This text invites us to get into good trouble. 
Sometimes following Jesus leads us to opportunities where we have to get into good trouble, where the status quo is upset and the message of the kingdom of God leads us to a place where we are at odds with different powers in the world and the people of God are invited to get into good trouble. I know you want to rush to Luke chapter 2. You want to read about the shepherds and the angels and those who came to worship Jesus. We're going to get there. But before we get there, we have to hear some of these other texts. And so in Luke chapter 3, we're introduced to a person who calls us to good trouble, and his name is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was given one job. He was given a job to prepare the way for Jesus, to prepare for what God was going to do in Christ. And so we're introduced to him early on in the story, actually. He has a pretty miraculous birth story himself. But he comes to the center stage in Luke chapter 3, where he's in the wilderness, and he is preaching this message from Isaiah 40 of preparing the way for the Lord. And here on this second Sunday of Advent, we are thinking about peace. We're thinking about the peace that the Lord brings to us. And what, what John does is he walks us through Isaiah chapter 40 is he's telling the people that this way of peace is, is, is going to be filled with conflict. This way of peace that God is bringing about in Christ is going to bring us into conflict with certain powers in our world. And so the people of God must be aware of that, must participate in this. And it's so odd to us because when we think of the word peace, we often think of the absence of conflict. I mean, how many of you just want peace in your house? Would you stop fighting with one another? But peace, or shalom as the word calls it, is, is much deeper. It's a much richer idea than just the absence of conflict. And, and so let's hear what John was saying, and let's hear his message today, and perhaps let's be led to get into good trouble today. Luke chapter 3, verse 1, begins like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Triconitus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. By the way, that's why you go to seminary, so you can pronounce all of that. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. And now here's the fun part. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce 
good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist. I want to say this, first of all. Let me ask you a hypothetical question. Would you show up every Sunday if John the Baptist was your pastor? Would you be here every Sunday to have the word of God come upon John and he look at you gathered here in this place and say, you brood of vipers, why'd you get up out of bed this morning and come to church? Let me tell you the word of God. Well, John is our guest speaker today. And I have a, I have a suspicion that the love offering is going to be really low. It's going to be really low today. Because John has a, a, a powerful message for us. He has, a, he has a message that makes us uncomfortable. And, and, and sort of the, well, I, I hate to say good news, because I have to be careful how I use that word in this moment, but, but here's just what you need to know, is, is that John's not your pastor. Um, but we have to hear this text. We have to hear this message that he is bringing to us. And, and part of Part of what we do in, in this life that we share together, I have a certain role. And today that role is, well, a mentor said, you know, if you want to get into pastoral ministry, you have to realize this, Mark, that some days you comfort the afflicted. But some days God's going to call you, call you to afflict the comfortable. And this is what John the Baptist does for us, especially those that would get up out of bed on a Sunday morning to, to celebrate the second Sunday of Advent. He afflicts the comfortable. And so, so I, I say that to, to prepare you to hear this, this message from John. It's one that I hope will change your life. It's one that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's understand what, what's going on here. First of all, Luke gives us these these details about the political thing that's happening there. He gives us these, these, these details that, that tell us that what John was doing in the kingdom that was coming through Christ, it happens in a real time and a real place. And so there's all these political figures that are, are mentioned there. And so this isn't happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a very specific time. And so today, if God were to do something similar, uh, it, would, it, it would read something like this. Like in the first year of the presidency of Joseph R. Biden, when Asa Hutchinson was governor of Arkansas and Stephanie Orman was mayor of Bentonville and Mark Lindstrom was the high priest of the North Arkansas district. That's, that's how it would read. It's, it's a very specific time, a very specific place. God is, is breaking into this reality and, and these systems and these structures, you see every form of government listed there, Roman, federal, governor, state, tetrarch, local, Annas and Caiaphas, religious. These, these structures of power are there and God is breaking in and, and doing something in the midst of these structures of power. And oh, by the way, it's preparing the way for what? A king. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. And power structures become very uncomfortable when a new king is announced. And so this new king is being announced, and it is going to disrupt all of these structures from the top all the way down 
to the bottom. And in this sense, the kingdom of God is political. Oh, don't say that, Pastor. Don't say that, Pastor. I get enough politics Monday through Saturday. This is my one oasis from that reality. And let me remind you, most of what we get is sensationalized partisanship. You do realize this, right? Let me, let me be the first to announce that to you if, you if you haven't realized that. Most of what dominates Twitter or what dominates cable news, especially from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., most of that is, is just sensational partisanship. It's designed to, to, to do two things. One media outlet is ideologically driven to make you afraid, and the other media outlet is ideologically driven to shame you. And so here we are, feeling ashamed or feeling afraid, and so we click more, we read more, we watch more. It's a big circus. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is Jesus breaking into our world and changing the structures of power, speaking a disruptive word into all of the structures of power that govern it. And so this kingdom of God, is breaking in, and it not only transforms individuals, it certainly does that as we respond to the gospel and we put our hope and our trust in Jesus, but this kingdom of God imagines the transformation of whole communities. Tiberius was the emperor, Pilate was the governor, Herod was the tetrarch, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest, and all of them are put on alert that a king is coming. A kingdom is, is, is breaking in. And one of the things that's going on during this time is Rome had a, had a grip upon the Mediterranean world. And Rome exercised its power through coercion, through forced slavery, through bloodshed, through violence. And to justify all of these things that Rome was doing, it had a propaganda machine that would pump out materials and literature and it invited people to trust in what's called the Pax Romana, which is Latin for peace of Rome. And it was a way for, for these, these places that had been colonized by Rome. They were upset about being colonized. They were upset about losing their land or paying these high taxes. But this, this literature of Pax Romana would come into these colonies and say, hey, I know you lost your land. I know you lost your business, and I know you lost all this kind of stuff, and I know people are enslaved right now, but it's the price you pay for peace. If you want to live in an absence of conflict, this is what you pay for the Pax Romana, for the, for the peace of Rome. You want law and order, right? If you want law and order, this is the price you pay. And so the Pax Romana was, was, was something that was kind of cooked up by the, the Roman propaganda machine to justify their use of violence. And here's John in the midst of that saying God is doing something new. God is doing something fresh. There are roads that are crooked and he's making them straight. There are valleys that are going to be filled and those in the valley are going to be lifted up. There are rough places that, that God is going to make smooth and the Bible is inviting us to think about peace, not in the way Rome thinks about peace, but to think about it in its biblical sense, the peace that the prophets call us to, this wonderful Hebrew idea of shalom. That's what Isaiah envisions, that, that God is going to break in through the Messiah and 
bring about shalom. Biblical shalom refers to relational wholeness. It's more than just the absence of conflict. It's imagine our world and all the web of relationships that make it up. We have relationship to God. And Jesus is going to restore that broken relationship with God. We have a relationship to others. And so often that relationship to others is strained by economic class. It's strained by ethnicity. It's strained by race. And Jesus is going to heal that by his life, death, and resurrection. So that Paul in Galatians chapter 3 can say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So relationships to God, relationships to others are put right. And the prophets are concerned about people's relationship to to systems and structures and government and economics. What's the message of the prophets? You have these unjust scales and you're cheating people and people aren't participating in the, 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 the cultural, political, economic life the way they should be. And the Messiah is going to make that right. And that relationship's broken. But then what about the relationship with ourselves? Who do we understand ourselves to be? What do we understand our calling and our purpose to be? And the Lord is going to heal that as well. So this web of relationships are healed and made whole by the Messiah, by the life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus. So there's the empire's peace. But what we're celebrating today on the second Sunday of Advent is the peace of the kingdom, the shalom of the kingdom that is breaking in through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so here's the card that John leads with. As he looks at a world that is broken, he looks at a world that has all of these relationships just all messed up. He says to those gathered, you brood of vipers. He doesn't mince words. He has a very clear message that he's there to deliver. I want to pause here and, and just say, you know, we as the people of God, we have a message to deliver, a message of justice, of righteousness, a message of morality, a message of hope above all things. But sometimes what's going on in the world and the brokenness of the world, it runs contrary to this message. It runs contrary to what we know Scripture reveals as right and good and moral And we feel emboldened to take this approach that John the Baptist does. Look at John the Baptist. I mean, he called people out. He called them a brood of vipers. He, I mean, what's the equivalent of that in our world? I mean, if you have a, a divine purpose and you're trying to proclaim this divine message of this way that the world should be ordered, basically you, you can justify any kind of insult or you, you, as long as it serves this purpose of bringing people towards this Christian worldview that we know to be right. And so we use the character of John the Baptist to sort of justify the, the way we go about some of these culture wars that also dominate some of the news. And I would just ask you today to, let's make sure, let's, let's have a checkup. Let, let's make sure, are we really... Do we really have biblical justification for some of the rhetoric that we use and for for some of the ways we go about engaging with culture? Before we unleash a tirade on social media or go to a rally or a protest or show up at a school board meeting and, and say all kinds of things, let's give ourselves a little checkup today. Like, 
are we justified in calling people a brood of vipers or whatever you want to fill in the blank? So, so let's go through a decision tree. Let's see if this is the kind of behavior that should characterize our engagement with culture. Uh, so this is, I'm just going to ask you some questions and you just answer yes or no and we'll see if we're justified in doing that. So number one, uh, do you live in the wilderness devoting yourself exclusively to prayer and the Old Testament prophets? Yes or no? Okay. If yes, move on to the next one. Uh, do you eat locust and wild honey? It has to be both. Wild honey's good, but it has to be paired with locusts. So if yes, move to the next question. Do you wear camel skin and a leather belt around your waist? Well, that sounds, I like camel skin. So if yes, move to the next one. Was your birth foretold to your father by an angel? Yes, no. And then last, was your postmenopausal mother miraculously able to get pregnant? Yes. If you answered yes to all of those, then you need to be up here. Okay? Because God has God is doing something in your life that, that means I just lost my job. But we we all, I believe, answered no to all of those. And it's, it's because what, what, what we have here in this character of John the Baptist is, is Scripture being descriptive and not prescriptive. It's not as if saying, look at this character of John the Baptist. Look how he called people broods of vipers. Look how he, look how he engaged with people and he called them out and he, and he, and he just was bombastic and, and forceful in his message. That's the kind of life you need to live. That's how you engage with people far from God. You call them out. They're a brood of vipers. They're wrong. They need to change. This is descriptive of one person in the story of God who had a very specific role to play. He was called to prepare the way, to prepare the hearts of the people. This is not prescriptive. This is not an example necessarily, at least not in the methodology of John, this is not an example of how we should engage with people who are far from God. John is the only one that gets to do this in this way. Now, how many of you just took a deep breath and you're like, oh, thank goodness, I'm just not a very combative person. And if you were going to tell me to go out and call people broods of vipers on social media, I was just not looking forward to that. And some of you are like, oh, man. Ah, oh. so somewhere in between, we need to figure out how do we engage culture? I mean, how do we prepare the way for this good news that is breaking into the world? What should we do then? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asked. And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort more money, or don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely 
Be content with your pay. Now look what happens here. Not only is this happening in a specific political reality with all kinds of structures that are being disrupted by the arrival of Jesus, but John looks specifically at three groups of people and says, as we prepare our hearts to receive this kingdom and to participate in this kingdom, this is what it looks like. This is the kind of things and the practices that should characterize our life as we bring about shalom that comes with the kingdom. And I want you to look first at this first group of people. John addresses individuals with resources. Specifically, they had the resource of two shirts. And says, hey, those of you with two shirts should look at those with no shirts. I mean, those of you with two shirts, look around there. There are naked people around you. You have the ability to share the one shirt you have with those who have zero. And we hear that, and that's pretty easy for us to hear honestly, if we're just reading it on the surface, because maybe you're like me. Just last month, I filled up four bags of clothes. In those four bags of clothes, I think there had to have been a hundred shirts. T-shirts, button-up shirts, sweaters, at least. I had at least a hundred shirts. And I'm ashamed to say, like some of them even had the price tag still on it. Do you have anything like that in your closet? I think they were given to me as gifts. They were hideous. I had 99 other shirts, and so they stayed in my closet. And so I loaded up four bags of shirts, and I went to Helping Hands, and I said, here's some shirts. I have fulfilled Luke chapter 3. But have I? Because what John says is, he doesn't say, you who have a hundred shirts, give to the one who has none. You who have enough resources, not only for today, but you barely have enough for tomorrow, sacrificially share your provision for tomorrow with the one who has nothing today. I mean, if you have 99 shirts or a hundred shirts, like, like your pastor, you, yeah, yeah, you could give a shirt. You're not trusting God in that gift. You've got all your other resources to trust in. But what John is saying, be so generous. Be, be so generous at a sacrificial level that you give in such a way that you are fully depending upon the Lord for tomorrow. I mean, now we are getting into the kind of generosity that will order this kingdom of peace. When God's people live with that kind of generosity, we're getting close to living in the kinds of ways that should characterize this kingdom of peace. Those who bring the kingdom of peace practice sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial generosity. And so that's a word to individuals, individuals with resources. Let's live in such a way that that we are fully dependent upon the Lord for tomorrow. And let's join with those who have nothing today and be in solidarity with them. But the second two things John talks about are systemic issues. He looks at the structure of taxes in the Roman Empire. And here's how it worked. Rome was going to get what Rome wanted. And so they appointed people throughout the empire to go and to collect. This is the amount. You want to be a tax collector? Make sure we get this amount. Anything you take above that, 
We don't care. Take whatever you want above that. Give us what we have prescribed for this province, for this town, for this community, and then you take as much as you want. That was the tax code for the Roman Empire. Consequently, tax collectors were not loved people. I don't know anyone who works for the IRS today that is, you know, we just, we, we just don't, we're not really in love with those people either, are we? But that was the tax code in the, in the first century. And so John says to them, you are participating in a system that benefits you. You're able to exploit it for your own personal benefit. And if you want to be a part of this kingdom that is coming, you have to no longer exploit it for your benefit, but you have to order it and steward it in ways that are just and equitable. Whoa, that's a tough message. Go back to calling me a brood of vipers. Don't make me surrender something that works to my advantage. I'd rather you insult me with your words. Now you're calling me to do something that requires me to let, give up something. He also talks to soldiers. It would be the closest thing to a law enforcement or a criminal justice system that, that you would have in the first century. Guess who enforced the tax code? It was the soldiers. If you couldn't pay your taxes, the soldiers came and they took you to prison or they did who knows what else to you, but they had unilateral power. And so these, these soldiers said, well, what should we do? Don't exploit your power. Don't exploit your power. And so these things that John mentions in his sermon are dealing with systemic things, things that, that are, are characteristic of the world at that time. And if we hear this rightly, it means this, that, that those who bring the kingdom's peace, we have to be advocates for just, fair, and equitable systems in our world. Are there places where people don't get a fair shake? Are there opportunities where the criminal justice system doesn't work for one group of people as well as it does for the other? I mean, shouldn't our world be characterized by fairness and justice and, and equity? And who should be leading the way to say these things need to change, these things need to be better? People who have a message of shalom, of relational wholeness, of seeing our relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with systems, relationships with ourselves, all of those working in harmony, the church should be on the front lines of advocating for those things. So there were people that heard this message. Some of them had an abundance of shirts. Some of them had an abundance of food. Tax collectors could work the system for their advantage. Soldiers had unlimited use of power. I don't know how they heard John's message. I don't know what their response was. But Luke only tells us that the people perhaps people who didn't have a shirt or didn't have food or were exploited by the system. Verse 15, that group of people said this, the people were waiting expectantly and wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. This is the news we've been waiting on. I've been waiting on someone to tell those tax collectors to clean up their act. I've been waiting on someone to tell those soldiers to use their power judiciously. Could this be the Messiah? Is this it? And John answered them all, oh, listen, I baptize you with water, 
But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then listen to verse 18. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news, the euangelion, the the gospel to them. You see, these people were waiting on a message like that. John, are you the Messiah? Are you the one to come? Are you going to take the crooked paths and make them straight? Are you going to lift up the valleys so that people in the valley are at the same level with those on the mountaintops? John, are you the one that's going to do that? Are you going to make all these rough places smooth and make our life better? John, are you the one? And in that moment, John probably was tempted. There's a nice crowd here in the wilderness. Maybe this movement is is gaining some momentum. But John remembers, I've got one job. I'm appointed for one reason, and that's to keep the focus on Jesus, to keep the focus on the one who's coming. And what I think what John is saying to that group of people, what he's saying to us is, is, is we have to imagine, we have to have an imagination for, for, for what the presence of Jesus would do in the midst of all of these broken relationships. So much of, of our world that, that is reacting against the injustice, so much of our world that is, is plagued by these broken systems, they're seeing the answers in kind of binary categories. It's, it's right or it's left. It's this way or it's that. And, and what John is saying is the answer is Jesus. What Jesus is going to do is give us a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of addressing these issues. He's going to baptize our hearts with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We can't be divided over these things in terms of, 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 of these ideological categories where people are on one side and people are on the other. John is saying, no, Jesus is coming and Jesus is going to give us a new way of thinking about this. And he's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This kingdom, you're going to try to contain it in old wineskins, but it's going to break the wineskins. You can't contain this kingdom in these, these old categories. So what is wrong in this world is going to be burned up by the fire that Jesus baptizes us with. And then what the world needs will be given through the Holy Spirit in which we are baptized. And so what I think the world needs more than, more than a politician is a, is, a, is a group of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who go out into the world and say, we are agents of, of peace, we are agents of shalom, and we have a message of love, we have a message of justice, we have a message of righteousness or right-relatedness, that is the healing balm that our world needs. It comes through Jesus, and so we look to him for the answer. So friends, I, 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 the world's broken. I don't, I'm, I'm grieved by things I hear about happening in places like Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Brunswick, Georgia. Portland, Oregon, 
And we hear these stories of relational brokenness. And we hear people on the right and left saying they've got it all figured out. And, and if, if you've experienced enough shame, you'll buy into my vision. If you experience enough fear, you'll buy into my vision. But what if the people of God said, no, God's, God's kingdom is breaking into these realities. And God wants to bring shalom. He wants to bring peace in Brunswick, Georgia, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in Portland, Oregon, and Bentonville, Arkansas. God wants to bring peace, shalom. And we wish that it would come without any trouble. We wish that God would just snap his fingers and we'd blink and all would be made right. But I think the message of John is saying for this kingdom to come, the people of God are going to have to get into a little good trouble. I mean, you start proclaiming this message of the gospel, which is our king divested himself of power and willingly laid his life down on a cross and showed people who were fighting with one another that this is the way. Proclaim that message in the brokenness of our world. It's not real palatable, but it's good news. It's good news, friends. And it's going to get you in a little good trouble. Are we willing to get into good trouble? It got John into trouble. Do you know that? Look at verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. Hmm. John got into a little trouble. He got into a little trouble because he was allowing his life to be used by God to take crooked ways and make them straight, to take low valleys and raise them up to the mountain peaks, to take rough places and make them smooth. In our Advent devotional, author Olivia Metcalf says this, The path toward peace isn't easy. The path toward peace isn't smooth. The path toward peace is risky, takes courage, and challenges the broken realities of the world. For peace to come, we must get to the hard work of aligning a world made crooked by sin with the straight paths of the kingdom of God. For peace to come, there is creative work that makes valleys of despair into mountaintops of hope. For peace to come, there is repetitive work that sands away injustice to bring about the smoothness of equity. Without the work, without the challenge, and without upsetting the status quo, peace will not come. That's a powerful challenge. It's a powerful challenge. Hmm. 
It's a challenge. It's a call to get into a little good trouble. So maybe you're saying, Pastor, I mean, what, what can I do? What can I do about racism? Or what can I do about economic injustice? What, what can I do about these things? Pastor, I'm one person. I'm one person. The good news of the second Sunday of Advent is that Jesus, Jesus has done it for us. That Jesus has laid his life down on a cross. That Jesus has showed us just how much God loves the world. And as we commit to follow Jesus, his power and his spirit becomes at work within us. And in the, the, the places where we have influence, in the places that we live, in the places that we're able to speak a word of hope and life, God takes that small offering that we give and he multiplies it. And he uses it in ways that you will only know in eternity. And so, friends, our call today is to ask the Lord, Lord, where is it? Where, where, where is brokenness in my life? Where are relationships strained and broken in my life? And how can you use me to heal those? Lord, I'm willing to get into a little good trouble for you. Lead me to places where I can get into a little good trouble so that your peace might reign.